Um, and the reason I'm standing here, it should be Josh, but um, he is um, COVID recovering. I suppose you said that at the start. And uh, so he rang me on Friday knowing that I had preached something out at Catalyst for Duncan and Trish last Sunday and could I step in. So God's gracious and this is a reforming of that message. But before we get started, the first slide that you have is a scripture from the beginning of the book of James. So let's have a look at that. I should too. And I'm going to turn it on because I'm getting good at this. I can hear my daughter laughing. <laughs> it's, it's gone. Thank you, Graham. <laughs> anyway, there's a scripture. <laughs> James chapter 1, verses 2 to 4, and we are making Ukraine our focus for the next five minutes. Consider it pure joy, my brothers. This is, this is in our reading in the summer series. Uh, can you believe it? Whenever you face trials of many kinds, because you know that the testing of your faith develops perseverance, perseverance must finish its work so that you may be mature and complete, not lacking anything. And I thought of Graham's comment last week about how inappropriate it is for any Western believer to use the word persecution about mandates authorities have put in place. And the same goes for any complaints about our perceived lack of freedom. Um, instead, uh, at 3.30pm on Thursday, I got a text that said, it's a little chaotic in Ukraine, bombing in every city. And somehow that text puts true persecution into right focus. So just quickly, as a backstory, um, many years ago, many, many years ago, I was the uh, privileged for five years to direct the Women's Department of Assemblies of God, what was then Assemblies of God in Queensland, and we received an invitation to work in Ukraine, which we took up. And so uh, from 2003 to 2007, uh, pastors and leaders, women who were pastors and leaders in Queensland, uh, went to Ukraine and we worked from the Carpathians in the west to uh, what is now, you all now know, we all now know as Donbass and then down in Crimea. So when I see what went on in 2013-14 in Crimea, um, it was very stirring because I have preached in some of those cities. Um, and our own Lynn, our own Lynn, her voice is still on the airwaves in Donbass. She came on the 2004 trip. So um, that has, uh, is, is one of the reasons why I have such a stir in my heart, one of the reasons why Graham has given me the privilege of having this time of prayer with you. Uh, but then come fast forward many years, and through Graham's Christie, um, I got an involvement in what we now know as a rise, which is common, which you now know about. So if I can just have that photo up. Oh, no, that's right, I do it now. It's working. So slick. Professional joy. So this is the group of women who came from Ukraine into what was then, uh, we were meeting in Istanbul in 2015. Um, so I want you to see their faces. The woman on the right, her name is Larissa. And Larissa was already, so already Putin had started to put his thumbprint on the land and had started to annex. 
and um, she had to, to get to Istanbul, she had to actually fly up through Moscow to get her down. But we got her into that conference and there she was saying, and I'm covered in goosebumps just remembering it, she said um, she didn't know why she was there um, and she was virtually pastoring the believers who were basically the old people who couldn't get out before the rebels had come in. Uh, we had another pastor, the lady in the white jacket, she and her husband pastoring in Lugansk. They had actually had been given 24 hours notice, you get out or we're killing you. And they had to pack a car and go. And they were pastoring a very big church in Lugansk. It was a horrific time. Uh, but this Larissa stayed behind and it was our Lizzie, my Lizzie, who preached a session at that conference out of Isaiah 58, 11, and which talks about the destruction of the walls and the streets and the dwellings. And Lizzie's point was when walls are down, we lose resilience. When streets are down, we lose relationships. And when dwellings are down, we lose our safe place for people's voices to be heard. And so she built the message that our job in those situations is to build resilience, relationship and recreate safe places. And Larissa said later, now I know what I'm to do when I go back into Donbass. So it's a, the, the, I, I mention that story because it just is all so deeply personal. The other thing we must be aware of is the, um, the, great, um, the great conflict in the personal hearts of believers, uh, the Russian believers and the Ukrainian believers. So it was just this morning that the woman who translates for me, she is Uzbek, she and her husband were leading the YWAM facility in Perm in the Ural Mountains. So even though they're Central Asian, they're in Russia. And so she sends an email that just says, this is not our normal monthly newsletter. Please pray for us. We are covered in shame and pain. It's not their decision, but that's how much they're feeling it. When that 3.30 text came through on Thursday, it was only an hour or so later that another text came from one of our Russian women who said in that text it began, this is now to a massive network, she said, please forgive me. Taking personally what she feels is a violation of what's going on in this sovereign land. So the, the, we, we understand, I understand very little. I just understand that my God, my Old Testament God knows how to take battles and turn them into something where there's victory, where the right people win. And I want us to now pray into that. So I was asking God for the way to do it. And as you now know, every man 18 to 60 has been told you cannot leave the nation. And that really is a haunting thought because what we also know is that we have family members, as was the case with the Berlin Wall, we have family members divided across these lines. And what is needing to happen now is Ukrainian men who may have relatives in Donbass or Crimea are being asked to stand and possibly, not implausibly, face down family and say, I've got to fight you. I've got to fight you. And that is horrific. So we're going to own this. Can we own this? So I want every man who's 18 to 60 to stand to your feet and represent what's going on in that nation. If you fit that age bracket, you can't leave Ukraine right now. You're not allowed out. You have to fight for your nation. And what I'm wondering is, is I mean, I can pray, I can bleed all over the microphone, but I wonder if you could own 
the trauma that your brothers are going through right now. This is trauma. This is not normal. This is wrong. And I believe that God is a God who's able to do more than just rescue a few people here and there and get them to safety. That's going on already. We want to see the head of this evil decapitated in Jesus' name. And God alone knows how to do that. So my invitation is for one or two of you to just stick your hand up and I'll run to you with the microphone. You pray. It's your brothers. It's your brothers who are facing this. And those of us who are sitting down, this is our father. This is our son. This is our uncle. This is our brother standing up. We need to own what's going on in this land. So I'd love to hand the microphone to somebody really quickly. Thanks, Rob. Yeah, you take it. Do a relay. Who's next? And I'll take it to you. Thanks. And to Stephen, and then you take to Andrew. Um, Heavenly Father, thank you um, that all things are being laid under the feet of Jesus in this time. And uh, we pray for every man who is waking up today, some full of nationalistic fervour and others uh, quaking and trembling at the prospect of having to uh, hold a gun and possibly uh, lose their life. And so we, we pray for those men and the women who are, and those children who are crying as those bombs are falling at the moment. We stand in complete solidarity with uh, the people of Ukraine and the men who are looking how to lead their families and how to look brave and strong when many will not be feeling that at all. We pray into those uh, each situation that, um, God, you'll be revealed in their midst, that you'll be glorified, that there will be uh, a multitude of miraculous stories that are going to unfold right now. And, um, yeah, for those who have heard of your great name, uh, I just pray you turn many men, their hearts toward you in this moment of desperation, that you'll, um, many will be saved, I pray in Jesus' name. Father, I would like to pray for all of the Ukrainian people right now, that you would fill them with courage Fill them with your, your power and your authority over this situation, Lord. Um, I pray against the Russian leadership that has instigated this. I pray against those who would seek to dominate others, uh, that would seek to impose their will upon other people um, without, without the true authority, Father. Um, we, we, pray, we pray, Lord, also for... The, the mothers who are losing sons and daughters. We pray for the men and women who are, who are bravely standing up to, to tyranny and invasion. Um, we pray, Lord, that, that peace would reign in the Ukraine, that, 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 your, that your angels would, would protect the people of, of the Ukraine, Father. We, we, we pray against the evil in the world, Father. We pray against the spirit that that inhabits that, that evil father. We we pray against we, we pray against all all of the the, the demons that, that are that are infesting the people who are making these terrible decisions, Lord. We we realize that this is as much a spiritual battle as a physical one, Lord. 
And we pray for your angels, your strength to, to come upon the, the Ukrainian people as they stand up against this tyranny, Father. We pray for a quick resolution and your peace. In Jesus' name. Who is next? Praise God. Thank you. I just want to also pray for the leaders of other countries because this is a very complex situation where moves made can have negative consequences as well as positive ones. So, Father, right now we know that evil has been sufficiently strategic up to this point and your good can be exponentially more strategic. So, Father, I right now commit to you leaders who are standing by wondering whether or not a move they make begins another Cold War, begins another World War. Father, I ask that you will give them unprecedented levels of wisdom, unprecedented levels of insight. And, Father, I pray that from the smallest, whether it be like the, the leader of a local community within Ukraine, right through to leaders of countries outside of the Ukraine, Lord, and I specifically also ask that your tr the truth come through. I thank you for the words we're seeing from the Ukrainian president and I pray that truth comes through and cuts through the propaganda so that people in Russia who are already courageously rising up will have greater reason to do so because they're basing it on the truth. So, Father, that ultimately evil be seen to be quite weak, that evil be seen to be quite frail, quite short-term, quite ineffective, and that goodness and that righteousness and that truth and that your capacity that said, be harmless as a dove but be sharp as a serpent. Father, that right now peace comes with smarts. And Lord, that you will absolutely anoint people in positions all over the world that we will not even know their names, but they might be in a place where they get to hand an intelligence piece of information to somebody that can make a decision. Father, may the right information get through. In your holy name. Thank you, darling. Thank you, gentlemen. And we continue. We'll stand at our post. We'll stay at our watch for this to happen because it, it, comes, down, it comes down to you and me. If you and me were in Ukraine, it comes down to how we get through this. So it, it becomes, I think, the global village is somehow um, shortened or got smaller because we're carrying it all together. So thank you, um, Graham, for your um, ability to see big. So this morning is something of a wrap-up of the summer series, which has been a look at the book of James. So we're going to, to a point, bring the book of James under review. Um, yesterday I had a couple of ministry engagements and the one in the morning was a strategic um, planning session for another ministry I'm involved in. 
and it was conducted by somebody I've known for many years, a man called Andrew Stone of Stone Creative. And he used an analogy, and I'm sitting there going, and now I've got my introduction for tomorrow. And here it is. He said, if I take a client to Eagle Street Pier, to what was called Cha Cha Cha, and I buy the best steak for them, and it is cooked by the best chef, and it's dished up on a dirty plate with dirty cutlery, what would that be like? And then he said, if the plate is clean and the cutlery is clean, I can have an 80% steak and they'll have a better experience. And I just smiled. I thought, he went on to say, that's what culture is. And Graham, I thought that even connected to some comments you were making at the leadership night last Monday. Um, the culture of the church is the clean plate. Everything we do, if we serve it up on a clean plate, it's going to taste better. So we say, thank you, James, which is why the title is what it is. Thank you for writing such an unambiguous book. Those five chapters, there's no, you don't need a whole pile of revelation. I'm sure somebody's got some somewhere. I don't. I just think it says do this and don't do that. It's quite unambiguous. Um, an interesting thing to me is that these believers had experienced salvation, baptisms, and were in community, but they were still um, conducting behaviours or exhibiting behaviours that they'd brought with them into the community of faith. And they weren't washed away by salvation, baptisms, and the community of faith. That's why they needed to be addressed. They still needed things to be spelled out so James provided them with basic instruction in righteousness about the culture of the kingdom. So put it like this. Uh, this is just trying to sum up James, which is quite an outrageous thought. But let's just go with this for now. The book of James sets a certain standard of external faith, works and deeds that are to be fed by internal purifying of motive that signposts kingdom in the life of the believer. What does kingdom culture look like? Well, it's a clean plate and how do you get a clean plate? Don't do some stuff and do some other stuff. And James makes that very clear. And I'm sure if we took the time, if, if Graham had set us a, a project, some homework of saying, could you all go home over this coming week, read the five chapters and come back with your favourite verse, um, you know, there'd probably be some crossovers. We'd possibly have some similar verses that we love the most, and maybe even that with words. So because I've got the microphone, I'm going to give you my two. Here we go. My favourite verse is James 1 verse 27. Religion that God our Father accepts as pure and faultless is this. Look after the orphans and the widows in their distress and keep yourself from being polluted by the world. I think that's very cool, that picture of pure religion. And here's my other fave. James 3, verses 17 and 18. But the wisdom that comes from heaven is first of all pure, then peace-loving, considerate, submissive, full of mercy, good fruit, impartial and sincere. Peacemakers who sow in peace raise a harvest of righteousness. And that's a picture of wisdom. So what those two verses give us is what we should be doing and how we should be doing it. 
And I only drop that little moment into this message to prove the point that there is no ambiguity in this man's writings. It is really a case of this is the kind of believer you ought to be. So whatever we do as individuals, um, but very much what we serve up as a community, it's to be on a clean plate with clean utensils and James shows us how. All of that is quite obvious and in a way that's my wrap-up of James as far as the content goes. But my question is, what kind of person could write this stuff? How did he know all of this? And as Graham said last week, James probably did not look like this or wear these clothes. But I want us to get our heads around the fact that he was a person. He was a person. History declares him to be the undisputed leader of the believers in Jerusalem. He was also in contact with Jewish believers who had dispersed. He was a key figure in the pivotal Jerusalem Council of 50 AD that resulted in Gentiles having equal sharing in the divine inheritance, which is another reason why I've called it Thank You, James. He comes across as a man who has a sound mind and great wisdom, a careful man who could be trusted with people's lives. Not surprising when you consider who his father was, this man Joseph, the only man in all of time that God trusted to rear his son. What kind of a man was Joseph and the influence he must have had on James is certainly an intriguing thought. Outside the Jerusalem church, the political situation in the Roman Judea region was one of great violence, corruption and poverty. How familiar does that sound? Inside the church, there was racial segregation, class distinction, conflict and more. And the memories of the Sermon on on the Mount seem to have grown dim and now interpersonal relationships and behaviours have drifted towards what we could possibly call religious humbug. And James was the man who was tasked with dealing with all of it, which is probably why he didn't mince words. It was just one blunt instruction after another. But all of that is not why I have his image on the screen. Here's what gets me about James. He was the half-brother or step-brother of our Lord. Yet while Jesus was alive, by all evidence, he just didn't get it. We see this told in John chapter one, John, John chapter seven, verses one to five. So we'll read it together. After this, Jesus travelled through Galilee. He wanted to stay out of Judea, but the Jewish leaders were plotting his death. But soon it was time for the Jewish festival of shelters. And Jesus' brothers, so that would be James and Jude, we have Jude's letter also, James and Jude and perhaps others said to him, leave here and go to Judea where your followers can see your miracles. Now you'll note I'm adding tone of voice, I realise that. You can't become famous if you hide like this. You can do such wonderful things. Show yourself to the world. And then it says, for even his brothers didn't believe in him. That is taunting. That is mockery. Goading. Disbelieving. And within a few years, James would watch his brother die a death that he possibly still did not understand 
And can you imagine how James felt when he looked back retrospectively and he realised that when his own brother was dying on the cross with a woman who was either his mother or his stepmother, Jesus didn't call on James to look after her. He had to go outside the family circle to get help for his mother. How do you think that would have made the mature James feel? So when he finally accepted that his brother was indeed the Messiah, he had to handle those memories. Can we assume for some time, plagued by sorrow and regret for the things he said to his brother and about his brother, that that would have been something to handle? Can you imagine him coming to grips with whatever was his motivation and his reason for doing so? You know, like, f put yourself in that role. What kind of things do we say to ourselves? What sort of things do I say to myself with my retrospective memories where I regret? I wish I'd been a better Christian. I wish I'd learnt more. I wish I'd done more. How could I have done that? I think we can fairly safely assume that somewhere, sometime, this man looked back with regret. I know that's a guess. But however James felt about his childhood and his youth, he used it to say, I now know what kingdom looks like. And I think Johnny Mitchell put it beautifully. I've seen, I've looked at life from both sides now, even though the rest of the song does not apply. James and Jude represent the redemptive and restorative power of the gospel to me. So that's why Jude can write, Now unto him who is able to keep us from falling and present us faultless, even me the brother who did some mocking, even me the brother who just didn't get it. There's a fascinating vignette in Galatians chapter 1, verses 18 and 19. And here Paul writes that he went to Jerusalem to get acquainted. He was coming up out of 14 years of being away and he comes into Jerusalem to get acquainted with Peter and it says, and there he met James and the writer, Paul says, the Lord's brother, which I think is a wonderful sense of ownership that had begun to happen. And again, with my imagination, here is a gathering of three men, Peter, Paul and James, each with their own reasons for sorrow and regret. And we certainly know of some of them through Paul's writings. But can you imagine the conversation over those 15 days that they are together? Paul says, I used to kill people like you. I heard the stories about the Messiah. I even saw the way people were so faithful to him. And I just didn't get it for a really long time. And Peter says, well, I was, with, with, I was with Jesus day and night for three years. I heard the truth. I saw the miracles. Yet I denied my Lord after saying I wouldn't. I just didn't get it for a really long time. And then James says, well, I lived with him for 30 years. I heard it all. I saw it all. I even mocked him. I just didn't get it for a really long time. So that's why we need to read the book, mindful of the man who wrote it. It's not enough for us to simply say that he was a leader of the church or the stepbrother of Christ. He was also this man who didn't get it for a really long time and he could have been paralysed by guilt and regret. But instead, with humility and wisdom and kindness, he taught us 
how to speak and how to live and how to act as righteous followers of Christ, if you like, just to push it a little further, clean plate believers, a clean plate community. And again, I say, thank you, James. So why am I so impassioned about this? I just want to go briefly back to chapter 2. Um, so I'm just, I've potted through chapter 2, verses 14 onwards. Uh, suppose a brother or a sister is without clothes and daily food, and one of you says to him, go, I wish you well, keep warm and well fed, but does nothing about his physical needs, what good is that? In the same way, faith by itself, if it is not surrounded, if it is not accompanied by action, is dead. So now I just want to have your indulgence to tell you why this is so deep within me. By my mid-twenties, and this is not a brag as you'll soon realise, by my mid-twenties I had an impressive resume of committees, leadership roles and pioneering good things. I had been busy for Jesus intentionally from 12 years of age when I used to go down into Edward Street before the Sunday night meeting and yell scriptures in what we called an open-air meeting. Oh, hallelujah, <laughs> bygone days. Um, and I have to say, for all of that, not only did I not get it, but to make matters worse, I didn't realise just how much I didn't get it. In 1978, I came back to Australia after 12 years in New Zealand and um, within a short time began to work at the church my dad was pastoring in the inner city of Brisbane um, in Fortitude Valley. And in the row of, in the, the street behind the church, there were some boarding houses that were about as ghastly as you can ever imagine an old inner city, post-war, pre-war boarding house to be. One of the men began, came out of the boarding house and began to attend the church. Well, security was laughable in those days and when I arrived I'd unlock the front door and leave it unlocked and disappear into the back of the church and work and anyone could have walked in. Well, he regularly did. And whatever grace and mercy I had, uh, let's say with hindsight, was a veneer. It ran out so quickly. He just got, he just annoyed me. It pulled out every carnal response you can have towards somebody else, and I perhaps still have a lot of that. Uh, but I pray it's at least weakening in its intensity, but I just let him get under my skin. At the end of the year, the young adults put on a Christmas dinner for the old people in the basement of that building. And um, he turned up and he said to me, can I have a meal? And I said, no. I said, we've catered, which of course is rubbish. You know full well we could have probably fed 50 people who weren't there. But my attitude came through and I said no. In the next four years, Ray and I met, we married, we had Daniel, we had Elizabeth, so 21-month-old boy, five-month-old girl, we moved to Canberra and again just got busy for Jesus because that's what I love to do. I love the Lord, I love his church, I love serving him. But it took about four years from that dreadful night for the Holy Spirit to finally say, and in my imagination, God just has a little conference up in heaven, says it's time. <laughs> and we're like, we've got to get this girl before she does any more damage in the body of Christ. Um, so he uh, revealed to me what I'd done. 
and I can still remember the colour of the bedspread as I fell to my knees and broke my heart for two years. After that, if ever I thought about it, I was back there breaking my heart. It was many years before I could talk about it publicly and the first time I did, um, it was a big wash uh, because the only verses in the Bible that would be harder for me to preach than the ones that are on the screen, uh, they still bring me undone and they are still the plough marks on my back, which is Matthew 25 verses 35 to 40. That when we feed and when we clothe and when we house the least, we're doing it to the Lord himself. Yet like Peter, James and Paul, 30 years ago I had to accept this truth from Hebrews 10.14 that by one sacrifice he has made perfect forever those who are being made holy. God doesn't seem to be too bothered about how we learn kingdom and the kingdom way, the kingdom way of external faith words and deeds fed by internal purifying of motive it seems like he's only concerned that we learn it. And I wonder if the Holy Spirit quickened James to write this descriptor of what it means to be being made holy because the Holy Spirit knew that James really only had to describe the child and the boy and the young adult that he'd lived with for three decades. The one who by one sacrifice has made perfect forever those who are being made holy. What fruit to come from any guilt or regret that James may have had. We are facing another year that started out buoyantly and then went weird very quickly. So what have we got? We've got a year that is not possible to predict globally. We have in James unambiguous standards for what counts as righteousness. We have a saviour who felt that we, every one of us sitting here, were worth dying for. And we have his sacrifice that is making us holy. I put it to you that the only way to round off James is with communion because it is our chance for clean plate living. <coughs> This communion represents that audacious claim that we are being made holy. So for the last time I will say, I think I have it, thank you James. But before we go, did anyone here resonate with the phrase, I just didn't get it for a really long time? It's a strange thing that we can hear the message and see the message in another and just not get it. Like Paul we can be consumed by our own rightness about what we believe. Like Peter, we can be consumed by our own need for self-preservation. And like James, unwilling to accept the Lordship of Christ in our lives. So may this communion time draw you, draw me, past all doubt that no matter what our story is, we are being made holy. And may nothing distract us from that conviction for the remainder of our days. <laughs>